What happens, happened. And other mind-bending philosophical anachronisms brought to you courtesy of Christopher Nolan's Tenet. Are you just watching episode 108, Tenet? Welcome to the podcast that shares critical thinking for the entertained Christian. I'm E. Franklin. I'm Tim Martin. And we finally got back to the theaters. <laughs> praise the Lord. I know it's not a really weird thing to praise the Lord about, but it's a sign of a small return to normality. Yay! So. <laughs> I'm very happy to have been able to sit in a dark theater, even if my theater required that we wear masks unless we were eating. Same here. I got around that by getting a medium popcorn and eating one kernel at a time. I got popcorn for, the, for my second viewing, just so I could keep my mask off. Yeah. I'll tell you what, it's it's hard to make a small popcorn last for a two-hour and 30-minute movie. <laughs> That's why I got a medium popcorn, <laughs> and I had a hard time eating it all. So, Yeah, I don't usually get concessions at movies, I, especially ones I'm taking notes on, because it's hard to eat and take notes at the same time. Yeah, but not to mention it's three cents it. a kernel. Yeah, something like that. And we're going to make all our listeners hungry by talking about popcorn. <laughs> Go to the movies. Go to the movies. They're open, at least in some places they are. Yeah. But yeah, we're talking about the movie Tenet, which is a two and a half hour long movie. It's uh, another one of Christopher Nolan's confusing and high thought, high brow type of, you know, science kind of bending your mind into things that doesn't necessarily easily think about. And I thought Inception was bad. This movie takes it to a whole nother uh, level. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. I think I walked out of the movie as more confused than I was in the middle of the movie. I, it didn't ever seem to gel until Which is not to say you walked maybe... out of the movie. No, I didn't walk out. Of, I watched the. I did walk out. I did not stay and watch the credits. So to me, oh, that's Oh, you missed the after credit the scene where they recruited Nick Fury? Ha ha ha. Uh, yeah, well. No, nah, I couldn't stand the music. I really couldn't stand the music. This is one of those movies that occasionally I just, the music did nothing for me. <laughs> so the score for this was Ludwig Gornson. And I listened to some of it from YouTube, you know, just so to kind of recap the soundtrack in my brain mm -hmm. before we recorded. I could only get a few songs into it. It was. It's basically, I guess, what you would call techno trance with kind of a symphonic undertone to make it feel like a soundtrack, but it's more tense noise than anything else. Is, I mean, it's just like the longer you listen to it, the tighter your muscles get. Is techno trance a real thing? I'd never heard of it. No, I think, I, I well, technos is and trance is. Okay. I just kind of mix the two. That works. Yeah. Copyright E. Franklin 2020. <laughs> yeah. It's what I branded it because it's got a lot of a techno feel to it, but yet yeah, it's got the repetitive rhythms of trance. And yeah, I didn't care for it. It's not my style of music. And then the credits actually started with, you know, the kind of Oh, rap. that you love so much. I do not like rap. So it just, it did nothing for me. So I was like, you know what? My friends need to use the restroom. I don't want to... Have them leave, and I sit here, it, you know, just enduring the music, so I went ahead and walked out. I will actually play a little bit of it here for you, just so that 
you can understand why I don't like it, I guess. I think that music, the pulsing rhythm and the, you know, just the kind of technical, non-musical kind of feel to it kind of is a good explanation for the attitude and the atmosphere of this movie. The movie itself kind of takes a little while, and I think maybe even more. I've only seen it once. Tim's seen Mm -hmm. it twice. I know that it gelled the longer I thought about it. I think part of that is that the movie's so fast-paced that you just can't wrap your mind around anything that's going on while you're watching the movie because they have these conversations that kind of try to make sense of what he's the idea he's presenting. Yeah. And then they follow it with this like mind numbing violence and, you know, high action scenes that you have to pay attention to or you can't figure out what's going on and you lose the thread of the science and the philosophy mm-hmm. that they're trying to present. Yeah, it's a viewer's version yeah. of they don't let you stop to breathe. It it yeah. is rushing from location to location to location, and you never get to stop and actually think. Yeah. When we were working on our outline yesterday, I kind of felt like when we said that it, he needed more time to tell the story, I think this really would have worked better as like a, a Netflix yeah. series instead of a, a feature movie, because he needed time to develop the concepts instead of trying to shove it all into a, a two to two and a half hour movie. I think he could have gone another hour and it would still have been just as confusing. Yeah. It, you know, most action films, they have their scenes of intense, intense action, but then they have this, this mm-hmm. slowdown in between where it lets the, the audience rest. This never really has that slowdown or at least the very few scenes where it does, it's not long enough or empty enough, you know, for you to give thought because that's when he's doing all the exposition and you're trying to make it all fit. Right. Yeah. He's, he's dumping information on you during this, the slow parts of the film. So if it's not high action, it's high concept. And so you're, you're dump, jumping from one to the other and it just, there's no relaxation. So it didn't feel like a two and a half hour movie because there was so much going on. You know, when it ends, you're like, wow, that was two and a half hours. <laughs> it's an interesting movie because you know what? The main character doesn't even have a name. Yeah. Nobody ever refers to him by a name. And even in the IMDb cast list, he's just called the protagonist. I'm sure it's been done. I don't, I don't recall a movie that we have done for the podcast where that was the case. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I want to say there's actually a couple classic literature books where the the main character is never named, but in this one, it everybody else has a name. It, it feels like he went out of his way to make sure the character is never. That nobody else ever asks for the character's name or refers to him by name or anything. 
Yeah. Yeah, he's given lots of, I mean, he's described, you know, like the American or, mm-hmm. I, I'm trying to remember what some of the references are to him. But yeah, he's never actually called by name. And that's a really odd thing. It's it's kind of almost like an everyman kind of feel because that's kind of what the the play Everyman did was the main character is called a- Everyman and he is a, like a stand in for, for everybody. Yeah, I think that's so every, every person. I'm going to conclude our episode with a, a literary allusions that I picked up in this in this movie that I'm not sure very many people have noticed. And part of it, I think, is possibly because of my English education in college. I have a degree in English Lit, so something really stood out to me in this movie. And I did a Google search, and I found one other article on the movie that mentioned it. Mm-hmm. So I... I, I did want to bring it up in our podcast, but I'll wait to the end. And if we don't have a lot of time, I may go ahead and blog on it just to flesh out my ideas on that. Yeah, I think that I think they're really good observations. And I never, I don't think even if I had written the same paper that you wrote, I don't think I would have picked it up. <laughs> I <laughs> yeah. did catch the the poem reference, though, so I am looking forward to discussing yeah. that. You know, just that one line that I thought was Robert Frost, but. <laughs> <laughs> I'm also not an English lit major, so. Yeah. So I'm referring to the poem by T.S. Eliot called The Hollow Men. I'll discuss on it later, but it, it was really cool to see the allusions to it and mm-hmm. all throughout the movie. And I'm, I'm excited to talk about it, but that's not really our main purpose in this podcast. So that's why yeah. I'm going to tack it on in the end. So, it, you know, the movie really does it, pretty much every time travel movie does this because it's like, you know, the meat of the time travel story, but it really does make you think about the linear nature of time mm-hmm. and how human perception happens. Even Avengers Endgame, Infinity War and Endgame did this. There was that whole scene where the Ancient One was lecturing uh, Bruce Banner on on timelines and everything like that. Right, and, the uh, multi-universe kind of feel. Yeah, but because of the way... And I even hesitate to call it time travel because they don't call it time travel in the movie. Or rather, the, no, the, no. when they do call it time travel in the movie, it gets uh, they are corrected and saying it's not time travel. But the right. way they present this concept in, in Tenant really makes you uh, think differently about it. And it's a little bit like – you remember – those sliding puzzles that we had as a kid that would have eight or 15 squares on a nine or 16 square grid. And you could slide the, you could mm-hmm. slide only one, one at piece, a time. Yeah. To, uh, to try and that's all, that's how the tenant felt to me. <laughs> you're trying to slide all these pieces around and sometimes they wouldn't slide into order. Yeah, it, when you're, when you're watching it, it all the way up until you come out of the theater at the end, you're looking at a completely scrambled picture and you yeah. spent the, you spend the next two or three days moving pieces around in your head, trying to get the picture to make sense. <laughs> yeah. I would not say that it's Christopher Nolan's best or most understandable movie. Let's put it that way. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I honestly, I I would probably classify it as his least understandable movie uh, of the ones I've seen. I've only yeah. seen like a third of his movies, so so. And we've actually reviewed a couple of them. Yeah, I know that 
Were you with me when we reviewed Inception or was that? I think that was Daniel. Yeah, I think we did it. I think we, we did Inception. We did. You and I did Interstellar. I think we do have a Dark Knight review. I thought in the actual cinematography and sound, they were both used very well to give clues to the viewer as to the nature mm-hmm. of the entropic state of the objects in the scene or the people in the scene or whatever you want to call it, where I almost will go so far as to say masterfully done if the waters weren't so muddied by the overall mm-hmm. concept being so difficult to to wrap your mind around. Right. I had one really significant complaint, which was worse in my first viewing, not quite as bad in my second viewing, but the the sound, the mixing was loud. And I mean, in the first mm-hmm. viewing, it was just shy of pain-inducing. Mm. And you said you saw XD, right? The first time? Yeah, yeah. The first time, it was one of the see-it-before-anyone-else previews, and it was only available in XD. Yeah. So uh, the second time, yeah, I just I, saw straight I, 2D, and, and it was a lot better. Yeah, the, just a regular yeah. digital. The XDs are definitely a louder environment, so that might have contributed a lot to it because I've seen a couple movies in XD and they are definitely louder. Mm-hmm. More surround sound. They're the, they have speakers, so many speakers in there all around you that they're trying to make it like you're in the movie and that sometimes they just crank it up too loud. Yeah. I had a problem with the mechanics of the what's called in the in the movie it's called inversion where uh, if you looked too closely at cause and effect it didn't hold up and uh, yeah. i don't i don't want to give too much away before we get to our uh, our spoiler section but uh, the the nature of time made it so that if you thought too much about it you would just go but wait a minute <laughs> that doesn't make sense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. I felt like he was treating this movie a lot like a magic show where it was 90% misdirection or mm-hmm. not so much misdirection or distraction so that you would wait until the end to start piecing it all together, except it didn't work that way. You couldn't stop long enough to breathe to actually piece anything together. You remember when mm-hmm. we were doing our Knives Out review, we talked about how the director did it right because he he didn't really withhold anything from the audience. He presented enough information that by the end of the movie, you were like, oh, okay, I should have been able to piece this together. But, you know, two days later from seeing Tenant, we're still piecing it together. Or <laughs> or we've given up yeah, one or yeah, the other. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> he just doesn't provide enough information, and I really feel like it's because he couldn't fill in the holes in the logic. It may have been that, and like I said earlier, it may have been he just didn't have enough time. It was such a, an in-depth concept that the movie, even if he'd gone four hours, I don't know that he would have had enough time mm. to really properly explain what he was trying to wrap the viewers' minds around. Yeah. So I, I think it was a time limit. I think it was... Yes. And maybe, like you said, holes in the concept. Like he would, maybe he was moving so frenetically fast that he was trying to prevent you from seeing the holes, because 
you can usually pick apart movies like that. If you're given too much time, you're like, oh, there, that was a bad, big, massive plot hole. Yeah. And I can name a few right off the top Even of my head. Even the structure of the movie would have lent itself better to like six one-hour or five 90-minute episodes on Netflix or mm-hmm. Amazon Prime. Almost as much so that I regret that he didn't go that direction because I feel like this deserved more exploration than he was able to give it. Yeah. Yeah, I kind of think about it like the TV show that which we've talked about reviewing and we never have that was on Netflix, uh, The Travelers, which actually went mm-hmm. to, what, three seasons? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, the, the fact with that one is is that it it was very a uh, highbrow concept. The, the whole idea of how they were traveling back in time wasn't in body. They were traveling consciousness. They were actually taking over bodies as they died and preventing their deaths because they had such great records of the past. But if they tried to make that into a two-hour movie, I think it would have been too hard to to figure out and wrap your head around where having it done as a a three-season series, Mm -hmm. you were able to to take the information in slowly, and by the time you get to the end, you're like, oh, okay, I get it now. And I'm not going to ruin that show by telling you what. You play with it, too. It's the the same way that uh, Isaac Asimov played with the Three Laws of Robotics, the iRobot yeah. series. Yeah, he presented mm-hmm. the Three Laws of Robotics, and at first blush, you know, they looked they looked like they made perfect sense. But then he went on to show you through the the series of short stories how they failed every time. And novels, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I did want to comment uh, just to tie it into to current events for me. Because I came out of my second viewing feeling this way was that Tenant throws so much information at you so fast. And not all of that information, all of the information is overwhelming, but not all of it is relevant. Mm-hmm. And I I was struck this I was struck the next morning about how that is so slimmer to how I feel social media is these days becoming yeah yeah (laughs) Yeah. so much information out there so many people are throwing facts around and articles from so many different sources half of which probably are not trustworthy exactly and but how do you yeah how do you know without spending hours and hours doing the troubleshooting it's just yeah it it really makes me it you can't trust the fact checkers either no no you can't (laughs) Even when Twitter or Facebook is tagging something as questionable, it's like, okay, yeah, I see what you're saying, but that doesn't negate the importance of the statement. It's just part of why I'm really leaning towards the idea that Facebook is on the majority as it stands today, bad for society. And, uh, you know, I just want to I want to set it aside for six months. Get me through the election and then after the election results. <laughs> yeah. And then maybe come back and see if it's gotten any better because uh, maybe COVID will be done by then. I know a lot of people are jumping off the platform because they feel like they're they're turning into uh, free speech moderators. And, and yeah. it's like it's a platform, not a publisher. So people should be able to, within reason, speak freely without concern of being – uh, blacklisted or put in Facebook jail or any of that stuff. But I get your point is that it is an overwhelming, sometimes you just have to 
narrow it down to a selection of things that you want to pay attention to and unfollow yeah. everything else and block yeah. everything else so it's not overwhelming. If you, you. want to interact with people, if you want to do like a, a Christian podcast, like are you just watching? You don't really have a choice. Mm-hmm. It's not. Yeah, it's not like you need to we be could say, "All right, we've yeah. had enough of Facebook. We're going to switch over to MySpace <laughs> or yeah, MeWe or Parlor." Yeah, there's several that are being batted about. It, it is a problem, but yeah, I can see your point. The tenant is is an overload of information. Yeah. So yeah, I can see the the connection there. Definitely. So anyway. Uh, that was the existential thought I had, I had about the movie, <laughs> you know, standing under the hot water in the shower going, oh, yeah. that's what's bugging me. Well, we don't want to spend a ton of time on our initial reactions because right. we want to get into the spoiler zone and we have a lot to talk about in this movie. We'll probably go fairly long on this episode, so be warned. Of course, you'll when you download and listen to it, you already know how long it is. But Plus, you can um, pause. You can pause and walk away for a while. We do, if you haven't uh, joined our group on Facebook, which we were just talking about the cesspool that is <laughs> Facebook, but we have this nice little group that we have formed where our more interested listeners who want to interact with us can join the group. And we typically will warn our the people in that group what we're recording on and give them a chance to uh, give us input on it. And so as we go into our spoiler section, I wanted to let you know that one of our listeners actually chimed in and gave us some input on this movie. He was actually lives in the UK. His name's Chris Turner. And uh, he got to see the movie long before we did. I guess it was released in the UK before it came to the States. So that was very helpful. Yeah. And his uh, question to us was, what do you think the film's message is meant to be? So our first theme that we're going to talk about is the main point of Tenet. And, I'm not entirely sure there is one. Yeah. I think I'm kind of with Chris on this one. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the main point of Tenet was, look how I can make your brain melt. Yeah. <laughs> so the idea of Tenet is that it is a – the time is just a dimension that can be turned back on itself. And, and it is true that scientifically we do know that time is a variable. So if it is a variable like in the speed of light – when you calculate the speed of light, you're calculating time as a variable. Mm-hmm. So it is a variable. And you can, in any equation, you can solve for any one of the variables in an equation. So that means that it is a variable, which means, theoretically, you can manipulate it. Yeah, now, in theory. mankind, in theory, and mankind hasn't quite reached that point. We don't know how to manipulate time. But in this movie, they have come up with this concept and believe me, this is my loose understanding of it because I still walked out of the movie not entirely sure. As you've heard from our initial reactions, we are still confused, still scratching our heads. Yeah. But the the initial concept of this is that in the future, somebody creates a algorithm that allows them to manipulate the variable of time. Not necessarily in a time travel way, but in a way of where you could reverse time so that you could actually go the other direction in time. So while everybody else is going forward in time, you actually turn the bend and go backwards in time. Right. And you can go backwards in time a few minutes or a couple hours or several days or a few weeks. It just depends on how long you want to live in the reverse before you turn around and go the other direction. And And to turn around and go the other direction, you have to 
you have to go back and get re it, it's literally re irradiated because it, the mechanism that they use for this is uh, they call it reversing the entropic effect. And it's, it is a state that you switch between the two. So if you take a, a bullet and you reverse its entropic state, it stays reversed. It stays reversed <laughs> and, and will continue going the wrong way in time forever. Until you turn it around. Uh, yeah, until somebody turns it around, right? It's a very confusing concept. And basically, you don't know how the people in the current real time have managed to get a hold of this technology so that they can reverse time. We are told uh, through some of the exposition that whatever future scientist created Tenet knew that it was going to be an issue. And so she broke the algorithm up and hid it in the past. So then people in the past somehow dug up this algorithm and are attempting to put it together. But yet they're still using the technology. So I, that's part of my confusion is, is if they hadn't put the algorithm together, how did they have the technology and able to use it so that they could reverse time and... It's very confusing, and there's a lot of understanding about it that I don't understand. But one thing that I can say without a doubt is that this movie, like most of Christopher Nolan's movies, I don't think I've ever watched one that wasn't, was heavily humanistic. Because like we said in, when we discussed Interstellar, this is all the power of man. Uh, future man, in like in Interstellar, it was future man coming back to kind of through the dimension of space and time to change decisions made by men in the past. And it's always man is, man is his own God in the future. Yeah. It's like we go forward in time and evolve to a point where we become our own gods in the past. And so it's very humanistic. I know Tenet is following that same uh, mm -hmm. path in that uh, some te technology in the future, some somehow – They've created this technology so that man can play God with his own past. And that is what we see the both the protagonist and the antagonist in this film doing is using this uh, tool. That's really all it is, this tool to play with time at, in, in God-like ways. And very humanistic. Man is his own God. So if, if there was a main point of Tenet, I, I think that it boils down to what Christopher Nolan almost always backs down to in all of his movies, that mankind is his own god, whether now or in the future. What are your thoughts, Tim? I know we kind of disagree a little bit on, on what Tenet actually is. Honestly, I don't really disagree with anything you yeah. said. The way he embraced humanity as the answer in Interstellar was much more evident of the uh, the humanistic viewpoint than it is in Tenant, but I think in Tenant he takes the idea, he takes the concept of God with a lowercase g, and he says people can be God, people can be their mm -hmm. own gods, and yeah, I mean people can people can achieve. Godlike status uh, in social media or godlike status in politics, but it's all godlike status and celebrity. Yeah, it's all godlike status and yeah. with that lowercase g. And Christians know that that godlike status is uh, idolatry 
like status. Mm-hmm. Except yeah. in Tenant, that godlike status, he takes he takes it and makes it un. Uh, what was it? You had a you had something written in the show notes. Exceptional ability, exceptional knowledge. Certain men with exceptional knowledge can have the power of God over the lives of humanity. Mm-hmm. And and that's how Tenet really does do it in this movie. So the main villain in Tenet is Seder, which now that I say it, I think that's the first time I've actually said it out loud. I wonder if mm-hmm. that was intentional. So, sounds a little bit like Satan. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or, you know, from Greek mythology, the Satyrs. Regardless, he gets this God complex because he is receiving information from the future and he is using that information um i I did even after two viewings i'm still unclear if he's using that information for strictly his own ends or if he is using it in conjunction with the intent of the people in the future he made some comment at the end of the movie about that he made a deal with the devil so I think that it was he had his own purposes in mind Mm -hmm. and they gave him the technology so that he could do what he with, you know, do his purposes, but that his purposes were in conjunction and walked hand in hand with the will of the people in the future who gave him the technology. So he was working on his own behalf, but what he wanted was. The same as what they wanted, I guess, is and by you know him, the way it comes down, yeah, to him it. completing his goal, which was to literally prevent anybody from opposing the people in the future whose goal was to war- wage war on the past. <sighs> he was executing a scorched earth policy. You know, if I can't have it, nobody will. And for me, that that is as clear an indication of evil as I could possibly come up with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it, but I was having trouble coming up with scripture for it. There's not a lot of scripture for people who want to destroy everything. But then I realized that there there's actually one reference that stands out, and that's First Peter five eight. Be sober-minded, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for anyone he can devour. And that really is what Seder was doing. Uh, he he was looking mm-hmm. to destroy anyone and everything he could because he couldn't have it. Because, and this is a major he spoiler. He was dying. He was dying. Yeah. Yep, dying of yeah. pancreatic cancer. And I didn't catch it until I was... I'm I'm going to be saying that a lot on this episode. I didn't catch yeah, it until I didn't catch it. I didn't catch it until I was working on the notes this afternoon. Uh, he even had a line earlier in the movie that says, "You don't negotiate with a tiger. You admire him until he attacks." Yeah, and that really just speaks to the First Peter five eight reference. One of the appropriate thoughts about how Satan is compared to a lion is the roaring lion is just fulfilling its nature. Nature. 
Yeah. You know, like the scorpion on the toad's back or the scorpion on the frog's back from the Aesop fable. It, it is just the hungry lion will eat you. That is the nature. And it's one of the reasons that the story of Daniel and the lion's den is so, you know, impactful <laughs> because <laughs> the, the lions had been starred for, what was it, seven days or something like that before Daniel was thrown in with them. And they still didn't eat Daniel because God had shut the lion's mouths. But that power, uh, Seder was convinced that uh, his lack of belief made him a god. Mm-hmm. Or like one, uh, as the line in the movie goes. And it's interesting because people treat him like that, too. Because like there's a phrase where the protagonist is talking to Seder's wife. Because he tries to turn his wife against him, basically. Yeah, And she's basically blackmailed into staying with him anyway but the protagonist says he holds all of our futures in his hands not just yours and so you know that's almost like the definition of god if he holds your future in his hands then he is yeah he has the power of god over you yeah (laughs) yeah you know and, and that actually that ties into one of the references we picked out uh psalm 31 14 through 14 and 15 but I trust in you, Lord. I say, you are my God. The course of my life is in your power. Rescue me from the power of my enemies and from my uh, persecutors. That really is yeah. the power that Seder feels like he has. And I, I, I feel like it's the power that Nolan wants us to come out of not just this movie, but all of his movies with the belief that the power does not lie with an un- omnipotent, um, <laughs> omnipotent <Yes>. God, <laughs> <laughs> but with uh, that word, with exactly, yeah, that's a that's a one, um, but with uh, <laughs> but with the people who can gather in enough power, almost like what's that? Uh, I don't know if religion is the right word. Philosophy that uh, Anne Rand. Rind, Rand, Rind, Rand, um, that she supports. There's a name for it. I can't remember it. Anyway, it's a version of, of humanism. But uh, the, the way that Seder is, is presented with this com- God complex uh, almost makes you not realize that uh, the protagonist, you know, has the same issue. Yeah, and that's that's the thing that you come out with at the end of the movie is that the protagonist is in exactly the same position as Seder. Mm-hmm. It's just he theoretically has the goodwill of mankind in in mind rather than want their destruction because he's selfish and his lack of selfishness was part of the test early on in the movie, you know, he's captured and and tested to see whether he would uh take a suicide pill to prevent himself from being tortured to give out the location for his comrades. And he took the suicide pill and that was the test that he passed. And so theoretically the idea was one, one of them is benevolent towards mankind, willing to give his life for, to protect everyone else. While on the other side, the other one is selfish and wants mankind to, to be nothing more than pawns on his chessboard. And when he can't play anymore, he wants to wipe the board clean. Yeah. And, 
and that's that's the the protagonist and the antagonist in this movie but they're both human and they're both playing with time mm-hmm. and which is something that in in human concept i mean we live on a linear sequential time we don't we can't see outside time we can't turn time back on itself and so to be able to play with time is something that an attribute that we give to God because it's not something we think humanity is capable of. And Tenet has set this up where man, mankind can literally make time their tool. And so that even that, you know, like you just talked about the omnipotence of God. We also have the omniscience of God presented in this movie because Seder is referenced as knowing everything that has happened. Yeah. Because, he has this way of seeing back through time and we don't know how far he's gone forward in time. Like the understanding is you can't go forward in time. You can only go back in time, but it's still completely confusing as to how that works. And so (laughs) among many other things, among other things. Yeah. that, That is very confusing. So, so there's actually in line in the movie where the protagonist says that Seder knows everything that has happened. Uh, so we can't like trick him because he already knows what's happened. And, and that refers, I mean, another verse that we pulled out was first John three nineteen through 20. It says, this is how we will know that we belong to the truth and will re- reassure our hearts before him whenever our hearts condemn us for God is greater than our hearts and he knows all things. So that is an attribute of God that allows us to have hope and trust in him because we don't know everything, but he does. So when things are going bad, like this year, I mean, we could just write 2020 <laughs> off as, you know, we know that that none of that took God by surprise. And so we can have, as Christians, we can have a hope that even though, you know, this year is terrible and, and, and uncertain and our lives are just constantly full of uncertainty right now. We just don't even know what next week holds, let alone next year or right after the elections or anything. We're just, our lives are full of uncertainty, but we know that God is in control and he already knows. And so that is another attribute of God that is given to Seder in this movie. And yet he's just a villain. He's just a bad man. Yeah. You know, at the end, when uh, at the very final scene where the protagonist is cleaning up the loose ends or taking right. taking care of the loose ends. In regard to Seder's wife. That's yeah, really. Yeah, exactly. I was struck by the idea that that's when his God, God complex really came home to me. And uh, mm-hmm. I was struck by the idea that in most of Nolan's works, there is no God, so there can't be any absolute truths. There can't be mm-hmm. any basis for morality aside from, you know, what is right in everybody's eyes. Right. So that's yeah. that's actually what scares me in the movie sense of the protagonist being the anti-satyr. What happens when his morality doesn't match my morality. Yeah. The idea that we can have faith in a God who has promised to make all things work for uh, good, you know, the good of those who love him is really is a comforting thought for me right there. Yeah. Yeah. I think it might actually be one of the final, if not the final lines in the movie is where he's telling the person that he's stopping from hurting Sater's wife at the end of the movie, he says, I told you, you need to start thinking about the world differently. I am 
the protagonist because they had this discussion earlier in the movie right. about who the protagonist was. And he's like, I am the protagonist. We're both working for me. And that was this concept of his future self had hired his past self and gotten his past self involved yeah. in the tenant project. Manipulated and everything so he's to make at, it happen. Right. So he's literally working for himself. And it's it's mind twisting to think that in in a situation like that, he, he was trying to figure out the whole movie is from his point of view trying to figure this out. It's he's being introduced to Tenet, he's being uh walked through Tenet to the point where he's use, manipulating and using it at the end, and he's told by one of the other characters near the end of the movie that this was just his beginning and that you know that they they were going to have lots of adventures together because mm-hmm. they were on different timelines. And so this whole concept is mind-boggling, but it does put him in, in a, a very weird position where he's actually being manipulated by himself, by a future self. And that was why I, I kind of connected that to Interstellar, because in a way that happened in Interstellar, too, where he went outside of time and and place and actually manipulated his, his past self's decisions and in Interstellar. It was in a very weird way. And so I think that that is a... I mean, going back to what is the point of Tenet, I just I think that that is Christopher Nolan's idea that he keeps rehashing over and over mm-hmm. again in all his movies, is that man is his own god. It's very humanistic. You know, one of the things that uh, that you and I had disagreed on was how much communication there was between the people in the future the past and, the, and future. The, the, and the people in the movie's present. Right. And I am of the opinion... Uh, and I think this is backed up by the dialogue in the movie that Seder is receiving clear and specific information throughout the entire movie regarding what is going to happen and what he needs to do to the point where he is at the right place at the right time to do the right thing, going the right direction. <laughs> but the protagonist is not until I think that final scene he delivers his his line, we are both working for me with such certainty that I think he is open he he is indicating that he is now open to that line of communication and he he is fully engaged in the tenant program. Right. Though I think that his may have been a close and, and I think this is where our argument came from because you were seeing the communication between Seder and future and the future being a much distant future where the protagonist is communicating with himself. So he can't be in a, a distant future. He can only be right. I, like I said, I don't know exactly how that works on the timeline. As long as you exist between the present and the distant future where inversion is worked out, then any point in between those two points on the timeline, you can communicate with the past because all you have to do is, you know, write out a piece of paper, invert it, and it and starts it going to- backwards instead of right. forwards. Yeah, they mentioned something like like inverted time capsules is the way that he was communicating. Buried where some, nobody some, will find them for hundreds of thousands yeah. of years or a hundred years or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Like um, they knew where to look for the for the buried inverted time capsule or something it, like that. That actually makes sense to me because who would know better 
than he when he can start openly communicating with him past, with his past self. Yeah. Because he knows where he finds the first communication. This hurts. <laughs> yeah, it hurts. It, it, it flows right into our next theme, which was actually one that was suggested by Chris Turner when he left some of his feedback, which if you join our group, you can see his, his posts because they were yeah. in our group. But he mentioned the, the topic of free will. And it, it's very interesting because to me, free will has always been, I, I kind of fall not directly in the middle, but roughly between the two camps of free will versus predestination. So I kind of split hairs on that topic, and I don't like to debate them because I, I think that some of that is just beyond human understanding. It's it's yeah. in the mind of God, and and yeah. I'm willing to admit ignor ignorance on how that works. But it's interesting that in Tenet, in the in the world of Tenet, let's let's put the Christian worldview aside for just a second and talk about the world of Tenet, which yeah. is created by the mind of a man, there would be no free will because your your present actions are dictated by the will of the future who is manipulating the past. And because the future is able to manipulate the past, the people in the past become merely pawns. And so, I mean, what little bit of free will you have could be negated by uh, how much you impact the future and how much the future cares about your impact on the future, yeah. at which point they could shut you down. And so your free will is only useful for yourself as long as you make small decisions that have no impact on the future, mm -hmm. which kind of ne negates free will in my opinion. But yeah, I think the in the aspect of humanity being able to manipulate its own past – Humanity is a less perfect mm. manipulator than God is because God is completely outside of time. So he doesn't require. Not only is he outside of time, but he is all knowing. So right. he can make the intelligent changes. He can do the manipulation and have the, have the effect that, that, uh, that he wants because, you know, he knows it's going to happen. We can't even manipulate our present. And get the effect we want. <laughs> right. Yeah. In the aspect of Tenet, I think that the way the system he has set up using this Tenet algorithm that affects the direction of time, not time travel, the direction of time, the way you experience time. Right. Uh, I, th I think it would negate to some extent the whole concept of free will because – Somebody in the future can always manipulate what happens in the past. Yeah, and you know, free will comes up once in the entire movie when the protagonist is first introduced to inverted objects by a scientist. Mm -hmm. And they literally ignore the question, and it is never brought up again. <laughs> yeah. And then they have – that have that incredible line that, that Neil keeps saying. Neil is the character that is played by Robert Pattinson, which it was kind of nice to see him in something other than Twilight. Twilight. <laughs> <laughs> but he his one thing that he said more than once in the movie was what happens happened. Yep. And that is the that mind bending idea that what is happening now has already happened and so therefore there is no reversal. And and you kind of see that because they actually retrack, retrace their own steps. Both Neil and the protagonist actually meet each other in 
in a an episode that you see first from one perspective and then later from another perspective where you get to see that they're actually fighting themselves. Yeah. And that instance is where you see that what happens did happened. It it, it happened the way it happens. And so it makes sense within the realm of the movie, but at the same time, it's so mind-bending that yeah. it becomes... It's like their actions were already preordained by the actions that had already happened. And so it's like this circular reasoning of predestination. You know, one of Chris Turner's comments was, as with some other films, I gasp in awe and wonder, astonished at how they managed to pull this off without CG. And, and then he says... I find this can sometimes connect me to God more, and I start rejoicing in his creation that in this film or any other. And the idea of the question of free will and tenet is one of those things for me, because as a, as a diehard mm-hmm. Calvinist, I subscribe to predestination, but I also subscribe to free will. And mm-hmm. the reason I feel that I am justified in doing that is because it just to me it just emphasizes it highlights it it makes known the absolute sovereignty of god that we are capable mm-hmm. of having absolute free will and he can still know exactly what we did do or will do and he's still sovereign yeah exactly and I think, and I think that's where the debate between the Arminialist and the Calvinist comes in is because I don't think either side is ultimately correct because they're both taking contrary <laughs> positions in, in a debate where God is sovereign over both. And so it's like, you're saying that God's sovereignty negates my ability to have free will. But I think that makes God more sovereign. It's, yeah, that He is in complete control, even when I have. It free just serves will. to, and to so, emphasize how beyond our ken He actually is. Yeah, <laughs> and you know, it's, it, it, that's one of those things where I think we're going to get to heaven, and and you know, somebody's going to go up to him and say, "God, you you got to you got to tell me, it, is it free will or is it predestination?" He's going to go, "Dude, really." Think about it. <laughs> what a stupid thing to argue about. He's gonna have he's gonna have a Bronx accent. I'm sure of it. Yeah. <laughs> and that's the thing is is that we think tenet is confusing because it's a human vision of of a confusing topic that actually makes very little sense when you wrap your head yeah, around it too, exactly. for too long. But trying to wrap our head around God is like. A hundred times, a thousand times, a million times worse than that, because God is so much greater than our understanding that we're simply not capable. We are human. We are not capable of understanding how God fits into the picture of the universe and time. He is beyond it. He's above it. He's sovereign over it. And so even though we we can admit that we find tenet confusing, I think it's even more important as Christians that we admit that we cannot describe how God is is God over all of that. It's mind bending. Yeah, we, we can't we can't wrap our mind around tenant's perception of time in the movie, but we can't even comprehend mm. God's <laughs> perception of time. Yeah, and it's interesting because just before we leave this short topic on free will, I. You had mentioned the fatalism of Neil yeah. in this movie because at the at, at the end of the movie we see him at the end of his story, and 
it's the beginning of the protagonist story, but it's the end of Neil's story, and he actually is fulfills his death in in the end of the mm-hmm. movie. And I say that in, in in that he fulfills his death because he I think he is actually aware when he takes that step that he knows that that is the end for him. Yeah, and so he fulfills his death. He actually voluntarily goes about doing the actions that he knows will end in his death. And I don't know that that's necessarily fatalistic because mm-hmm. with his belief of what happens happened, he knows that that's just the the next thing on. Yeah. You know, the- I, I, I feel like he's turned it into a, that. What's happens, what happens happened. I feel like he's turned that into a mantra, a philosophy that he lives by. Uh, and dies, or dies by, by yeah. in this case. Yeah. <laughs> so we've already touched on it some, but there is another character in this movie, and that is the future. And it's, it's spoken of throughout the movie as if it is a character, which is very interesting in concept and probably adds to the mind-bending confusion mm-hmm. of the movie. Some of the lines that are mentioned when – the protagonist is talking to this arms dealer. She tries to I- explain it to him as we communicate with the future, everything we do that leaves a record. The question is, can the future speak back? And so this is like you're speaking to a person, right? So you're communicating with the future and can the future speak back? So it's it's very much personified in this movie. It's like given role as as a character, which is is interesting. I think that there was a, a, a statement, I'm trying to remember now who said it, I think it was Neil. They were discussing the grandfather paradox, which is, I guess, a, a standard it paradox is. when you're talking about time travel, where if you go back and kill your grandfather, do you cease to exist? And then you can't go back and kill your grandfather because you never existed. Right. So it creates this paradox. And Neil made this comment. He's like, those in the future believe they can kick their grandfathers down the stairs, gouge their eyes out, and slit their throats without consequences. <laughs> and... So, I I think that was um a, a very picturesque yep. way of of just of explaining how the future is an entity in this movie because the future is literally trying to shut down something that happens in the past to prevent the future that it's currently living in from happening, and I think that's g- the general gist that you get is is that the future wants to wipe out the past, and somehow or another the future doesn't think that the consequences of that. Are and you know what? I ju- it just hit me. That's what the Travelers was about too on Netflix. Yeah, that's it true. was the future trying to wipe out the past. Uh, well, they were they were they're specifically trying to manipulate trying the past to, fix it. So, to affect a better future for themselves. But that's the same understanding that's going on in Tenet, where the future is maybe in in a less direct way than happens in the Travelers. It's trying to change the past so that whatever future that the future is living in will be different. And so there don't seem to be too concerned with the grandfather paradox, which either means that the grandfather paradox isn't actually a paradox. Or they don't care if they destroy everything because it, regardless of what the effect of the paradox is, it's got to be better than what they're facing. Right. So the future must be really bad. (laughs) But there are people in the future who, who work against the ones who are, are providing. Seder, the information. Seder's patrons. There has to be patrons on the other side because how else would the protagonist become the protagonist? Exactly. Because 
And yeah, Priya, it, the the arms dealer lady, she she says as much that there is an opposing force in the future. The lady who created the algorithm that would somehow allow break time and and break the inversion effect was part of the group that sought to she well she likens that scientist to Oppenheimer where she yeah, revolted exactly. and broke the she was trying to prevent what happens from happening mm-hmm. and so yeah there there does appear to be she thought up something that was then used as a tool by people who that she didn't trust and that has happened more often than not with science and in our history. So I can see that easily happening in the future. Yeah, there was actually a line in the movie where it says we're being attacked by the future. So yeah, the future is definitely an entity in this movie. And I just want to reiterate that God is outside and sovereign over time. Yeah. So the the fact that in this movie, where they obviously have discarded God, I mean, God is mentioned. In fact, there's a line in there where Seder says, God will forgive me. Oh, yeah. I don't know why he thought. You don't believe in God. God is in this. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, he says, the God will forgive me and the protagonist says, but you don't believe in God. So, you know, this whole idea of forgiveness for what he was doing is is kind of ridiculous. But Mm -hmm. like we said, theoretically, time is a variable, so it can be manipulated. We don't have the ability to, to manipulate time. Whether we have it in the future or not is regardless of the fact that God is over time, yeah. so in outside of time. And so whatever we do is still going to be under the sovereignty of God. Even if we had the ability to manipulate time in the way that Tenet suggests, we don't have the mental capacity to understand how to do it. You know, it, it, it ties back we to the butterfly effect. <laughs> Yeah, we we yeah. would mess it up just by discovering the ability. There's this argument that I yeah. subscribe to about uh, <laughs> what is the gr- the greatest proof that humanity never learns to travel backwards in time is the fact that I have never met a time traveler. <laughs> because if it is ever yeah. discovered, then everyone from that point on can travel back in time. So we should be flooded. <laughs> By by time traveling tourists, and we never were. I like Orson Scott Card. I don't know whether how much of his I love, stuff you've I read. I love his, his game writing. Him. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he wrote uh, the Redemption of Christopher Columbus, and it was part of a series that I don't think he ever wrote any more books in called Past Watch. And it was a concept of in the future there would be a technology to view the past, but not travel to it. So you could like pick a time in history. And you could watch the past. And I've read The Redemption of Christopher Columbus. And I understood sort of what he was saying. But that would be, you know, a way that we could view the past without actually doing anything to it. Yeah. Yeah. I I, I agree with your concept of that if in the future we are able to travel to the past, then, Yeah. It doesn't work out because, like you said, we would have met time travelers. Hmm. Unless it was just so heavily restricted that, no, like in the movie, um, which I would love to do a podcast on, though it's very dated, um, Millennium, which came out in the mid-80s. And that was the concept where they would go back and take people off of planes that are crashing and take them into the future to repopulate the world because they are all dying in the future. That sounds familiar. I wonder if I've seen it. 
you may have. It's a very old movie. Uh, it's actually the one phrase that came out of the movie that most people have heard but don't know where it came from is walk into the light. It's a very old movie, and it was an interesting concept back then. And I think it would be a really cool movie to redo now with our current technology because – it was kind of in a way like this movie because the time traveler, half the movie is from the perspective in, in the real time. And then the second half of the movie does the same events, but from the perspective of the time traveler, mm -hmm. which are out of order because she comes back to different times in different order. And so it's, it was masterfully done for the era that it came out, but it is one of my favorite time travel mm. movies. I'll have to check it out. All that to say... We can't uh, mess up the plans of God. And yeah, so in Jeremiah 29, 11, 12. Now, I always have to preface this verse because so many people use this verse out of context. Uh, the for I know the plans I have for you. This is the Lord's declaration plans for your well-being, mm -hmm. not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. You will call to me and come and, pr and pray to me and I will listen to you. This is given, this comment, this promise is given specifically to Israel. Yeah. This is not to the future us, this isn't to Christians, this is a specific promise. But prefacing it that way, this is God's attitude towards his people, that he does have plans for us. And so we can't mess up his plans, let's put it that yeah. way. <laughs> no matter, even if we were ever able to, to uh, gain the ability to mess with time, we can't mess up God's plans. And then, of course, in Ecclesiastes 3.11, which is... That's still one of my favorite books of the Bible. He has made everything appropriate in its time. He has also put eternity in their hearts, but no one can discover the work God has done from beginning to end. So this is, you know, the basic understanding that God is over and above time and we can't understand it. It's out of, out of our realm of understanding. So even if we can conceptualize and theorize that time is a variable, it is outside of our ability to control and, and have any power over. Oh, I feel like I've run run a gauntlet Yeah, <laughs> trying to talk about this movie. It's, and, you know, the more I think about it, the more it makes my head hurt. <laughs> and that's with I'm two not sure viewings that's a and, thing. and actually sitting down and writing <laughs> notes and working it out. And yeah. I, I feel like if I had been an actor in the movie, I'd have been like, just give me my lines, man. I don't want to understand the motivation. <laughs> Yeah, and you know they film those things completely out of sequence. So even most movies <laughs> like are that would out matter sequence, in this movie. So. <laughs> <laughs> so the final thing I I alluded to it at the beginning, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because we're already going really long. But I do want to talk about the Holloman by T. S. Eliot, yeah. which the end of the poem, the Holloman, is the best known lines, and they've become so pop culture that most people don't even know where they came from. But the original origin of the phrase, this is the way the world ends, not with a bang, but a whimper. That is the end of The Hollow Men by T.S. Eliot. And it's actually, this is the way the world ends is, is repeated. It's like, this is the way the world ends. This is the way the world ends. Mm -hmm. This is the way the world ends, not with a bang, but a whimper. And that is used in this movie. And the one you thought came from a different poem. Yeah a different author, but Seder uses it. And so it's, it's his understanding that because he's dying anyway, he is going to take the world with him when he dies. He is created like a, a dead man switch where when he dies, the algorithm is put together and follows. I don't even exactly know how he was planning to do it. it 
it's one of those things that doesn't make sense, but somehow or another, he was going to end time with his death. Yeah. And I, I couldn't understand that part destroy either. the world. Yeah. His intention was to end time when he died. And so when I got to that part in the movie, I, of course, my ears perked up because I wrote a paper in, I'm, I have a degree in English and I, one of the papers I wrote in college was a review and an analysis of The Hollow Man by T.S. Eliot. So I have always known where that phrase comes from. And I've always been interested in the phraseology of The Hollow Man. And so I actually wrote in my notes, T.S. Eliot. And I looked up the poem and read it again. And the whole movie is full of references to The Hollow Man. One of the, the past phrase that the soldiers are using at the at the beginning and the first scene, which you really never do know what's going on in that, that initial. Yeah. The whole setting. opera, uh, or, uh, operation in the opera, the opera house. house. Yeah. yeah. The way they identify themselves to each other is they use the term. We live in a twilight world and the twilight world is one of the three worlds that are just described in the Holloman. And basically what's going on in the poem is that, the people live in the twilight world, which is reality, and they can't communicate with the afterlife, which is the other side. And so T.S. Eliot uses all kinds of poetic license and, and phraseology to explain the fact that the people who live in the afterlife, who have died and crossed over the river, have a greater knowledge, and they are living more real lives because they have that knowledge of what's on the other side, while the people who are living in reality do not have that knowledge. And so they are hollow men, they are scarecrows, they have no purpose. And then the third world is is really the transition between the two. And so in this movie, they have all three because the twilight world would be the main time uh, line that everybody is on. Everybody's on the timeline that's going forward. And then when they anything is reversed through the tenant science process, process they're going through that intermediary world between the two yeah and then once they're on the other side then they're in the af the afterworld which is their where they have more knowledge because they're seeing things in a different perspective that is give they're giving given more knowledge because they are outside of the time continuum mm -hmm. or whatever it is so all three of the of those worlds are represented in the movie and in very much the same way that T.S. Eliot was talking about them in the poem. One of the other phrases that is the protagonist when he uh, takes the cyanide pill, which turns out not to be the real pill, and he wakes up again, the first line he hears is, welcome to the afterlife. And so that is, in the Holloman, the poem, the afterlife is put forward as being the, the life that has more knowledge, where you know more and you understand more and you're living a more real life. And so that was at that point in the movie where he takes that step into the world of knowing more and having more knowledge. Mm -hmm. And so huh, the parallels are amazing. The more I thought about it, I was like, whoever wrote the movie, which I'm, it I'm was assuming Nolan. it's Christopher yeah. Nolan, yeah, that he must have been a huge fan of T.S. Eliot to be able to effortlessly weave the whole concept of the hollow man throughout this movie to the point where it so closely correlates. I know most people don't like poetry because it's hard to understand. And the only reason why I, I have any grasp of what the hollow man means, because it is a very much a modern poem in the way it's phrased yeah. 
is because I wrote a paper on it and I spent hours reading it over and dissecting it and going line by line. And, and you sort of ha- you have you sort of have to with T. S. Eliot. Uh, yeah. Eliot yeah. Cummings uh, is the same way. Um, it's mm-hmm. and I I I'm in the I'm in the majority of people. I have difficulty understanding. I actually have an easier time understanding Chaucer than I, than I have <laughs> with Eliot. So yes, yeah. Of course, being a literary major, I just kind of went a little bit geeky over that. You know that I was able to pull in some of my literary background okay. into this movie and and think about okay, it. Okay, let's from that let's standpoint. do a movie where I get to use my business major. <laughs> So the afterlife represents knowledge in in this movie and in the poem. Mm -hmm. And to leave us with a a final note on this, I'm going to return to Ecclesiastes because, like I said before, it's my favorite book. It's not my favorite book. James is my favorite book. But Ecclesiastes is up there on the top list. (laughs) Yeah. Ecclesiastes 3 actually deals with the concept of time. That's almost what the entire chapter is about. And in verses 19 through 22, it says, For the fate of the children of Adam and the fate of animals is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath. People have no advantage over animals since everything is futile. All are going to the same place. All come from dust and all return to dust. Who knows if the spirits of the children of Adam go upward and the spirits of animals go downward to the earth. I have seen that there is nothing better than for a person to enjoy his activities because that is his reward for who can enable him to see what will happen after he dies. And it's like Ecclesiastes was, was doing a synopsis of the poem that T.S. Eliot was going to write (laughs) in the future. (laughs) Cause that's basically the whole concept of T.S. Eliot's poem is that, you know, we're just hollow men going through the process of life and we don't have any clue of what's on the other Mm -hmm. side. And that knowledge is a power that we can't have because we don't have it until we cross over and then we can't communicate back. To me, it's just fascinating that they were able to weave that through the movie. And it is a a, a kind of a a fatalistic way to, to end our, our podcast, but just want to remind you what we've already said that, no one can discover the work of God has done from beginning to end. He is omniscient. He has control over all of it. And that is where our hope is as Christians, that yeah. nothing takes him by surprise. Uh, he's in. He's sovereign. He's in control of everything. So even in our fatalism, not understanding, not being able to see beyond this life, we know that God is on the other side. And that is something that atheists lack, unfortunately. They I think in their hearts they know, but they're not willing to accept that knowledge, and so yeah, it's a it would be a, a too scary an existence for me as an atheist. Yeah, yeah. I I need God as a security blanket, <laughs> or as a crutch, as they say. We use oh God yes, as a crutch, yeah, that's exactly but, yeah, that's what they yeah. say. Well, if you have any thoughts about Tenet, if you've managed to get to the movie theater and see it, I hope that you have listened to this entire episode and are willing to communicate with us. Like I said earlier, please join our Facebook discussion group. You can get on there and know in advance what we're going to record on and give your thoughts if if you want to. Uh, you can also comment on the show notes, which are for this episode will be at areyoujustwatching.com slash 108. 
You can call us at 513-818-2959 to leave us a voicemail. You can email feedback at areyoujustwatching.com. We do ask that you subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. I just happened to notice today that Amazon is now announcing podcasts, so I'm going to work on getting Ah. us on that platform as well. You can follow me on Twitter at E. Franklin. And you can follow my very sporadic postings on Twitter at Rencheple, (laughs) R-E-N-C-H-E-P-L-E. Got to get through it quickly. Yeah, I I never post on Twitter. It's it, it but it, it is at least one way that you can follow us. Yeah, uh, I think the only thing I ever post is our episodes. It's pretty much the same year and a random thought here and there. Yeah, well, Twitter is more of a cesspool than Facebook, and that's saying a lot nowadays. <sighs> and we would like to thank our faithful supporters, Craig Hardy, Stephen Brown II, David Lefton, and Peter Chapman for their monthly support. If you'd like to support, are you just watching? We'd love for you to go to patreon.com slash are you just watching and consider giving us a monthly gift. Anyway, I don't know what we're doing for October. Now that the theaters are back open, I'm sure we can come up with something. And if you have any suggestions, feel free to send them by by any of those means of communication. And uh, we will catch you in October in our next episode. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Eve Franklin. I'm Tim Martin. And don't just watch. Are You Just Watching as a member of the Christian podcast community. Find more interesting podcasts on theology and Christian living at podcast.strivingforeternity.org.